As Jeff says, Dr. Tim Elmore always delivers. Watching or listening to this leader chat, you will also see that Tim and Jeff have a rapport. What you will also notice is that Tim's new research and book, The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership, is a must-have for leaders in any industry, especially education. Tim, the founder and CEO of Growing Leaders, has contributed to our leadership circle several times. His book, The Pandemic Population, was a hit amongst our members. This focus on leaders takes the relevance of his perspective to a new level for us. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, how are you? I'm Jeff Rose. Welcome to Leader Chat. And if you are a Leadership Circle member, you're watching this live with us. Hello. If you are a Leadership Circle, potentially you're watching the video that we're sending your way. And many others are just listening to the podcast. And so we are thankful to be here today. And you're not here to listen to me. The guest today is um, not just uh, a mentor and a friend, but an incredibly wise leader who is teaching others about leadership. And you're going to see exactly what I'm referring to here in a minute because today we are talking to Dr. Tim Elmore. Now, I know Tim. Tim and I have become friends over the years. This is not the first time I have done an event like this with Tim. So um, it would be easy for me just to, to jump right in. But I am going to read his bio because I don't want to miss anything. And then I'm going to ask him, of course, if, um, if I missed anything. And I will tell you that to my left, since Tim sits Tim, we are sitting together, not just him Zoomed in meeting with me. So uh, this is going to be fun. Dr. Tim Elmore is founder and CEO of Growing Leaders, an Atlanta-based nonprofit organization created to develop emerging leaders. Since founding Growing Leaders in 2003, Elmore has spoken to over 500,000, I said that correctly, leaders in businesses, universities, athletic teams, and nonprofit organizations, including the Home Depot, Coca-Cola, American Eagle, Chick-fil-A, the San Francisco Giants, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Ohio State University, Stanford University, and the University of Alabama Athletics. His work grew out of 20 years serving alongside Dr. John C. Maxwell. You may have heard of him. I would hope so anyway, where he focused on leadership for the emerging generations. Elmore has appeared on the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, Psychology Today, and he's been featured on CNN's Headline News and Fox and Friends to talk about leading multiple generations in the marketplace. Tim was listed in the top 100 leadership speakers in America by Inc. Magazine. He has written more than 35 books. I said that correctly, 35 books, including the best-selling Habitudes, Images that Form Leadership Habits and Attitudes. Tim and his wife, Pam, have two children, Bethany and Jonathan. They both live just outside of Atlanta, actually fairly almost down the road from me. So. I'm thrilled. Tim, thank you so much for being here today. Jeff, it's always good to sit down with you. It Thanks. really is always good to sit down with you. So thanks for being here with us yeah, at Cognia. This is fun. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen your place now. This is really a cool spot. Isn't it awesome? People need to come here. This is an amazing <laughs> facility. I'm truly blessed to, to sit here. So it's great. So I read your bio. You didn't, you know, I don't, I'm curious, what did I miss beforehand? What what drove you into this work? In, in mm. third grade, you weren't yeah. giving keynotes and writing no. books. So what was <laughs> it? What's your path to you know, the before the story? This is just yeah. the success afterwards. 
It's a good question. Um, probably the Reader's Digest version is um, my heart for students, for the next generation, started um, in, when my work in the classroom began in 1980. So it's four decades ago. I was still the emerging generation, but I was teaching students and I began to realize this is where I want to sink my life. Whatever I do and whatever role I have, I want to be putting my fingerprints on. That sounds wrong. I want to be touching the next yeah, generation. Yeah. And my work with John Maxwell was leadership oriented, but I kept thinking, how can we get these principles to these students before they make the mistakes that I made or you made or whatever. So that's really what Growing Leaders is about. How can we get the stuff that we know works, life skills, and get them to those kids that are learning reading, writing, arithmetic, but maybe not the life skills that we know they, they desperately need. And so much of what you do clearly um, has been focused on exactly what you say, yeah. supporting students in their journey as leaders. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, to do so, you talk with teachers and principals yeah. and educators and obviously some you know organizations that are also yeah. looking for just leadership advice yeah. and direction so that must be interesting navigating all those different entities to some degree yeah it is it is I find the common thread is that while our end user might be a young person uh, our direct customer if I could say it that way is yeah. really the person in front of them so an employer an educator a coach we work with pro football teams that are saying, help us understand these 21-year-old rookies that we do not get. Sure, you know, different sure. values, different language. So we're, we're doing our best to keep our ear to the ground and saying, here's how we connect generations together. Yeah. So we've talked about other topics in yeah. the past. Um, almost everything. If almost I, everything. Yeah. Almost <laughs> everything. But today, I, I really want to focus on this book, okay. right? this, The Air Paradoxes of Great yeah. Leadership. Yeah. Um, I've read it. I've listened to it and I've, I've stalked you um, on, <laughs> online and watched you talk about it numerous times. My challenge will be to get you to talk to it as opposed to just get too excited and take over and try to summarize it on my own. Okay? Okay. So I'm going right. to do my best to give this to you because that's why we asked you to okay. be here, right? Okay. Um, so this, uh, your foundational work at Growing Leaders, while I'm, I'm sure still stays focused on your overall values. But like all organizations morph yeah, and they yeah. change and find kind of, you know, new arms of the work, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so, but this book, Great, this Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership, focuses, in my opinion, on any leader. Yeah. This isn't yeah. just focused on students or teachers or principals or in education. This is a high-level leadership book. Yeah. Right? So how did, how did you find yourself maybe moving into that focus or did it just seem to happen and shift from your last yeah, book? Yeah, a little of both. I mean, some was just I, I, I fell into it, but, but I, I began to notice some patterns. Jeff, I think you and I have even talked about this. The last couple of years has been not only strange, but it's been a great accelerator. Whatever was already happening, good or bad, just got accelerated. For years, we've been saying in education, we need to do technology better. Well, suddenly we had to do technology better. Right. We need to do diversity, equity, and inclusion better. Suddenly we had to do it better. So I feel like we've been accelerated and we've been pushed into what I would call an either-or world. You're either left or right. You're either this or that, red, red or blue, in you know, political. Sure, sure. And you and I both know it's probably not both. It's not, probably not either-or. It's both-and. And what I started noticing was the leaders that were effective in education or business were the ones that could balance paradoxical 
elements to their leadership. They would read their people before they lead their people. And in reading them, they realize what they need is this and that. And maybe at 10 o'clock they need this from me, but at 3 o'clock they need some. Isn't that true about parenting? At 10 a.m. they need stern, at 3 p.m. they need compassion. You know, so I found eight paradoxes that I think the best leaders I know do both of these. And uh, I found them in every education, churches, healthcare, companies. So I tried to summarize it in this book and, yeah. and do the best I can at providing case studies for it. Yeah. Well, you, you really did. And my curiosity was your last book, The Pandemic Population. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we talked about that. In yeah. fact, I want you to know we've had districts um, get this book, read it as a team, wow. trying to understand right the psyche yeah. of different generations during yeah. you know, a pretty turbulent time. <laughs> yeah, right? no doubt. I'm honored. That's so great. moving from the pandemic population yeah. to this, was that like this natural shift, like learning and engaging and researching that, the why behind leadership and how you describe it in these paradoxes? Yeah. How did that, what yeah. was the, from bouncing Connecting that the to dots. this, yeah, connect that for Yeah, me. I think the dots connected for me. When I wrote The Pandemic Population, it really was, as you well know, a study of, of how the mental health of kids was being affected by COVID-19. But what I did was I looked back at the last 100 years, the last three or four pandemics, what, what did adults do, caring adults, to help kids do better? What I came up with along the way was, we need to lead differently. If their need is this, we better lead uh, not in this top-down, bark out the orders, and I don't think anybody's doing that anymore, but we just can't. So you've heard me talk about this, but I was in a green room in 2019 before the pandemic, happened to be with 16 CEOs, and I decided to make it a focus group. And I said, hey, ladies and gentlemen. Action research. That's right, right here on the spot. And so I tossed out the question, do you think leading today, leading people today, is harder than it was when you first learned to lead? Or was it harder back then? Yeah. I thought I'd get a mixed review. Every one of them said, harder today. So I pushed back. I said, really harder today? Wouldn't you think it'd be harder when you were 25 and you first learned to lead and you didn't know what you were doing? Right. But everybody stuck to their guns. They said, no, it's harder today. And that started a conversation which started some research. Why is it more complex and volatile and uncertain and all of these things that we're saying to each other? And what I came up with is certainly there's some hard skills that leaders have to practice. But this book is really about soft skills. It's about it's social and emotional learning for leaders is what it is. Well, that's you you you, you call it that. Yeah. So yeah. so let's unpack that a little bit. Okay. Social emotional leadership. Yeah. Right? Because yes. social emotional, right? This is a this is being used in schools yeah. and clearly for needed reasons. It's mm-hmm. ramping up relative mm-hmm. to focus and programming. Yeah. yeah. But Social emotional leadership. Describe yeah. that because, as you did in the book, that that got me leaning in yeah, even prior sure. to the paradoxes. Yeah. Well, I would say that um, far too many of us. I'll just speak for me. I've been in my career for quite a while. I get stuck in a way of leading. It's the way that Tim Elmore likes to lead. Not the way they need it, but the way I like it. So I lead out of who I am, not who they are. I think leaders need to say, "Who are they?" and "How do I lead in a way that's most relevant?" And, and, and connected to them. So, for instance, there are paradoxes, as you know, that, that force me to say I need to shift my style. Um, for instance, paradox number one in the book is I think people look for leaders that are both confident and humble. 
Well, sometimes you see one or the other. There's either, man, that guy's really confident, in fact, a little overconfident, yep. or he's so humble, I wonder if we're going to get to our goal, you know, that sort of thing. But I think it's both and. In fact, my theory is I don't think we'll ever get anywhere without a confident leader. So confidence makes my leadership believable, but humility makes my confidence believable. When I'm humble, they realize, okay, this guy sees the bigger picture. He knows he didn't get here alone. He's not smoking something. He's really in touch with reality. Yeah. And those together make me lean and say, I'll trust you, Jeff. Where do you want to go? If, I don't, if I've got one or the other, good luck with certain temperaments on certain days, and I feel like right now, instead of stepping back because it's hard to lead, we need to step up and say, let me rise to the challenge of leading in this tumultuous time. So if we can stay with this paradox for a second. Okay, yeah. Uh, because it's, it's, it's one that um, it stood out for me in that I think the educational leader mm -hmm. finds themselves in a, in a kind of an interesting pickle right now. Mm -hmm. um, first off, in education, we really uh, tend to focus on people, you know, competency. Yeah, right. right. De yeah. Students demonstrating competency yes. in subjects, yes. right? Leaders, unfortunately, especially educational leaders, have this very complicated business mm -hmm. of managing yeah. lots of things. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, they're trying to help people help people, right? People yeah, help right, people. Right. People are pretty com complicated. Yes, they are. And then there's everything else from the building and transportation and food service and on and on. So it's leaders often have to own every room they walk into mm -hmm. or at least demonstrate yeah, yeah. that they have it together mm -hmm. even when they don't. Yeah. So while their focus is on demonstrating competency, we know there's a leadership trend. In fact, we talked with Amanda Ripley, we've talked with uh, Daniel Pink recently, mm -hmm. and we know there is this trend on showing humility. Yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, I think sometimes the educational leader doesn't think they have the space to show mm -hmm. humility. Yeah. They just have to pretend, and I use the word pretend seriously, yeah. like they have it yeah. all together because they yeah. don't. Yeah. So let's unpack this chapter. How can an educational leader find this balance or examples yeah. Yeah. for that balance? Because I, I don't think that they feel like they have the space for it. Yeah, I think you're right. As I talk to superintendents and principals, they, they would say that if they were candid. Yeah. I don't feel like I can not know what I'm doing. And God forbid they find I'm a poser yes. or a pretender yeah. or a you yeah. know, that sort of thing. This is why this is such a, an emotional intelligence issue. When I'm confident, it doesn't mean I'm controlling. It means I'm secure enough to say, I got to be honest with you. I'm not sure what to do next. Let me get back to you. Or could we sit down together and, and, and grab a coffee and talk this over? I think people are breathing easier saying, thank God you know that you don't know what you're doing. You know, you know what you don't know. So if you remember, my, my case study in that chapter was Bob Iger. Yes. So recently retired from Disney. Yeah, you talked about Bob because, I mean, I, of course I know, but I want our listeners to know how okay. you describe This is important. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I like Bob Iger as an example because when he was asked to be the CEO of the Disney Empire, I mean, a company that sells theme park tickets and plush <laughs> toys and movies and animation. Complicated. Yes, a little, <laughs> a little bit like a superintendent schools, if I might add. So he comes in and he says, I realize right away, I do not know most of the industries that Disney is in. I come out of network television. So he said, there I was sitting down with people that I was leading saying, could you explain what we're doing here? And he thought that could be a death sentence for me. He knew, but he said, I couldn't pretend they would read that immediately if I was pretending like mm -hmm. I knew what I was doing. 
So he said, you've got to go in with a sense of confidence, but it's emotional security. I'm secure enough to tell you, Jeff, I need you to teach, coach me up now because I'm about to run point on this and I want to make a good decision. You're going to help me make a good decision. He said, I found the people leaning into me as the CEO saying, thank you for needing my help. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? The opposite you would think. They said, thank you for being human. I want to help you win because you want to help me win. We all know that and we preach that from the lectern at the conference, right. but boy, that's hard. So Bob, here's a great example. I'm sorry about monopolizing this conversation. No, that, I, he, I, I hope you do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was such a contrast from Michael Eisner, his predecessor. So Michael Eisner, in all due respect, was a, a bit of an arrogant, almost pompous CEO of Disney that got fired from, by the board because he was overconfident. I mean, quite frankly, no humility, lots of confidence. Uh -huh. So he had one or the other. When Bob took over, um, he picked back up on something Michael had tried to do. Michael Eisner had tried to form a partnership with Pixar and Steve Jobs. Remember Steve Jobs? Yep. Oh my gosh, this genius. Well, when Steve Jobs and Michael Eisner met, again, in all due respect, it was two egos, just buttonheads. You can imagine, yep. two egos that filled the room. Well, every time it just reached an impasse. Bob waits for some time to pass after taking the throne, but then he calls up Steve Jobs, says, Steve, you've never met me, Bob Iger. I'm the new guy at, at Disney. He said, I know you and Michael have talked and I know you reached an impasse. But he said, Steve, the more I think about this, the more I think we could be better together. I know it's a crazy idea, but what do you think? Steve paused and then said, that's not such a crazy idea. They bonded. They became such close friends that there were only like 14 people at Steve Jobs' funeral. Bob and his wife were there. I'm telling you, it's friendships that form when you lead with emotional security. It's yeah. stuff you and I try yeah. to practice. Yeah. And I'm still on my journey. I'm yeah. too much ego's not enough or too much this not enough. But boy, did he model it well in that particular industry. And I don't think it's unlike education with so many things he was trying to accomplish. I have... Um uh, a, a friend and one of our members who did this incredible job recently and um, she was in, in front of the board. It was a very heated board meeting. Um, there were a lot of people there with public comment yeah, uh, on yeah. different perspectives <laughs> yeah. and they were navigating and listening and they were, uh, they were attacking the yes, leadership. Yeah. And so um, this leader um, on camera said, I, I want to appreciate um, everything that you're saying. You're here because you care about your children. Yeah. Um, I also want to be very clear. Um, one, we're doing the best we can. Yeah. Um, but you need to know that we are going to make decisions that are not going to make everyone happy. Yeah. Um, you also need to know, I don't know how to do this. Mm. I know how to lead a school system. Yeah. I've never led through the COVID chaos yeah. before. What this a powerful is, confession. This is new to all of us. Yeah. And by the way, it hurts me. Uh, the decisions that we feel like we have to make for mm -hmm. the safety of kids, yeah. it's not easy. Yeah. And I don't think they're great. I think that mm. the best we can do with mm. the information we have now, and I apologize if it's hard for you, it must be hard because I know it's hard for me. It was, wow. it was something like this. Yes. I paraphrased it. Yeah. I'm yes. sure she did an even much better job than I just did. But... That was such a clean example. Mm -hmm. Don't mm -hmm. you think of, yeah. you know, actually owning the room, yeah. being open and honest, yep. and 
you know, still, I am the decider. I yeah. have to make decisions. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the best I can. It wasn't a woes me. It yeah. was, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that sometimes that's the line. That's the balance in this paradox you're trying to find. It really is. Um, in fact, I think that speech that you just paraphrased is, is confidence and humility. Owning the room, I'm confident enough to tell you some things that probably most of you wouldn't say, but I'm humble enough to say, I know they're not great decisions. That's a concession that you, people, oh, you just took my argument away. I thought you thought you were great. No, I don't. That's powerful. So if you yeah. know, I stuck some images in each of these chapters. Yes, yes. One of the images I love most of our habitudes, it's a brand new one, it's not been published yet, but it's called Guide Dogs or Guard Dogs. And in short, these are two jobs we've given to canines, mm -hmm. guide dog, guard dog. The big difference is their job. The guard dog's job is to protect. He's got a piece of territory, he's barking, sniffing, growling, yeah. Yeah. something's gonna happen that's wrong. Don't you know some guard dog leaders? Guide yep. dogs are just the opposite. I'm gonna go first, I'm helping somebody else see the way that they don't see. I'm gonna take initiative, I'm gonna be vulnerable. So I think leading with vulnerability, like that illustration you just gave, is what we gotta to learn to do. But we'll never do it if we're insecure people. I, I mean, people, now forget leader, just yeah. being a person that's secure enough to say, I gotta be honest with you, this is hard for me too. Uh, I, I, I need your help just like you need my help. That's the answer in, in days like we're in. Okay, so let's, let's, I should have asked you this at the very beginning. Um, when I mentioned the title of this book to mm -hmm. my wife, okay, and I said I was you know, meeting with you again, and uh, I noticed the look on her face for a second. Right, she's, she's processing. Yeah, yeah. Paradox, paradox, of eight paradox. So she, I could see her processing, <laughs> yeah. right? What you can imagine people doing. So yes, of let's course. take a step back, step back and um, describe to us this concept of paradox because yeah. it clearly makes uh, a lot of sense when you describe paradox number one is yes have. yes but let's yeah. just go back paradoxes yeah. and there's eight of them of leadership yeah okay so first of all we all use that term from time to time but i think it's good to define it a paradox is two seemingly contradictory realities that feel like it shouldn't go together but then they do go together so in the book i talk about during the COVID 19 thing the city of atlanta where we live had fewer cars on the road, but there were more car accidents. That's a paradox. Yeah. Until we got a report from the police that said, because there's fewer cars on the road, people are driving more recklessly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's right. <laughs> so there's always a reason for the paradox, and in all eight, I try to explain why this paradox works. But yeah, that's what it is. And I think in our complex, either or, boxy, black and white world, we just don't let ourselves see it. But I think we've got to see most of life is a paradox. It's a weird thing where we learn to love each other and lead each other, where it's messy and gray yeah. half the time at yeah. least. Yeah. At, at least half the That's time. Right. That's well, right. to your point, when you had you were in the green room yeah. and you said, mm -hmm. um, is it easier or yeah. more challenging? And they all said it's more challenging, even though they probably were better leaders then than when they started, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And yet, they said it's harder, don't you yeah. assume, because it's getting you can't really say it's but grayer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I think it is. Or more of the time, I mm -hmm. mean. Yeah, well, and people enter their jobs, whatever industry, but uh, particularly education. They enter with higher levels of education. They, liver, they, they bring into their workplace as new team members, higher expectations. We expect more of leaders today than we did 50 years ago. Uh, pardon me, higher sense of entitlement. I feel entitled to more. There should be perks with this thing. Yeah. Way more than when I first started hiring people, 
um, higher exposure. We've got a smartphone in our hand. I can look up the dirt on anybody, even you, Mr. Leader or Miss Leader. Sure. So all of those add to the mix of, I've got to balance these realities. I can't say you're fired. I'm going to find an easier person to lead. In fact, I would say this. <laughs> if you have a bunch of uneducated people, this is obvious, you're going to get a bunch of followers. And don't you need leaders around you, Mr. Superintendent or Miss Superintendent? Yes, I do. All right, then get ready for a wild ride where you have a lot of cats that are hard to herd, yeah. but we got to bring them together. Nothing, yeah. nothing really good is easy. <laughs> that's right? true. I'm glad you said that. I mean, that's so true. Usually great work yeah. is the result yeah. of painstaking step-by-step yeah. yeah. processes that don't happen mm -hmm. alone. Yeah, it's they true. They happen together, which therefore makes it messy because, yeah. you know, people are complicated, right? Yeah, very true. No doubt about it. Now, one would assume after uh, me reading the book that I would ask about Paradox 6, which is leaders, great mm -hmm. leaders need to be both um, teachers and learners. Mm -hmm. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, you did. So, because I'm an educator at heart, yeah. they would assume, right? That's right. I'm not, I mean, it, it, I'm not so sure that, I, I, would, I would think there would be many educational leaders that would shake their head of, mm -hmm. well, absolutely. Yeah, lifelong learning. Yeah. Right. But yeah. Like, what do you think? You know mm -hmm. principals. Yeah. You know teachers. Yeah. You've met superintendents. You know, thinking of the educator, because this book is so high-level leadership, mm -hmm. looking through the lens of an educator, what do you think, as, what aspects of this book stand out as being really critical to talk about? Wow, good question. And, and, and you can't say all of them. That would be cheap. <laughs> That's what I want to say. <laughs> yeah, well, they're all, and they all are. I'm just saying, is there any that, from the educational lens, yes, I understand. slap you around okay. a little bit, where you think? Yeah. Two of them come to mind. Okay. One of them is, and this is the, probably the most paradoxical of all paradoxes, I think effective leaders leverage both their vision and their blind spots. Yeah. And most, in, in fact, even our friend Andy Stanley said, what? How mm. does that? You can't have both. It's really true. And you leverage them both. So um, for the listeners here, we all know we need vision if we're going to be a leader. You can't run a, a, a school district or a school for that matter unless you got a vision. So that's a clear target you want to hit. But I think the best, best leaders also leverage blind spots, which is in the business world we call those rookie smarts, where I don't know mm -hmm. what I'm doing, but, but oh my gosh, I got lucky. So my, my case study on that one was Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. And yeah. I'll very quickly give yeah. a review because this is such a, a great and, story. And it was a very, very, very poignant review on this. Yeah, it's a great story. I, I love her story. And she's an Atlantan. So Sarah, when she was like in her late 20s, came up with this whole new industry, shapewear, for, for ladies. And uh, because it was brand new and she didn't have distribution, she didn't have marketing, she thought, where, where am I going to find this? So after she found a North Carolina manufacturer to make these Spanx, she thought, how am I going to get distribution? And she ended up from a friend of a friend of a friend calling up an executive at um, Neiman Marcus department store and said, could I have 10 minutes of your time? The lady, it was a, a female executive. Thank God it was a female executive who could understand. <laughs> she got 10 minutes. So she flies out to Neiman Marcus. She knows she's got to make the most of 600 seconds, you know. So she gets up there, five minutes into her little presentation where she's describing these Spanx, she can tell she's getting nowhere. The lady's probably heard 25 pitches already that day and it's just not going anywhere. Sarah stands up, says, would you follow me? And the executive said, I beg your pardon? She said, would you follow me into the women's room? 
I want to show you something. So she does a show and tell. <laughs> Only ladies can imagine this yeah, fully, yeah, but yeah. she puts on the Spanx immediately. Sold, because the, the woman can see, this is great. So they decide to beta test it in 10 or 12 stores. So Sarah very wisely, as a young professional, calls up friends in each of those cities and says, Would you, I'm going to send you money. Would you buy up all the banks in the Neiman Market store? And of course, it takes off, and then Bloomingdale's and other department stores pick it up. Here's the paradox. Sometime later, Sarah's doing a Q&A on how she started this company. And people in the room were raising their hands saying, Sarah, pardon me, how did you get the attention of a department store in those gigantic trade shows where there's thousands of exhibitors. And Sarah says, trade show? Exhibitors? What do you mean? She'd never been to a trade show. She didn't know that protocol was go to a trade show. Her blind spot saved her life. She went straight to the top and, and did it a, a completely fundamentally different way. My point was this. What she did know actually helped her. And I'm just thinking superintendents and principals, mm. maybe in this COVID time, you're, the very thing you don't know might save you. So don't be afraid to take a bit of a risk, not a reckless risk, but a calculated risk, and go, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. Thank God I don't. When I started growing leaders, Jeff, I've told you this before as a friend, I didn't know what I was doing. I look back on several big decisions I made. Thank God I didn't know. Yeah. I would have done the normal routine, never really gotten noticed, or never really, I think, made the progress it was uh, probably because I didn't, because I had not come that, from the industry of nonprofit work. This is such a more eloquent way than I've said in the past to, to leaders at times. Try to embrace your naivete. Yeah. Because yeah. you'd rather sometimes be naive than maybe really knowledgeable and maybe even jaded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, so yeah. it's okay because sometimes not knowing allows you to believe Absolutely. and just focus on what's possible as opposed to all the reasons you can't. Yeah. Right? All the great, I think, this is my opinion, all the great leaders in whatever industry they did down through history, it, they forged a way that people thought it couldn't be done. So change on the front end seems impossible, on the back end seems inevitable. And that's what I think Sarah did. And I think that's what we got to do in our world. So that's one paradox for educators. Yeah, what was the other the one? The other one real quick, I think that's really helpful is I think effective leaders set both high standards and yet have gracious forgiveness. Now this is one for the heart, but we all know there's mistakes that are made and people that yeah. are under our care where we've got to either fire them or forgive them. Yeah. One F or the other, fire them or forgive them. And we know that forgiveness is right. That's what I heard in church, blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah. But I'm telling you, when you can have both of these, you've got a, you've got a top 10 company, you've got a top 10 school. So um, ironically, I shouldn't say ironically, it was interesting to me to study leaders. The one I decided to use on this one as a case study was none other than Harriet Tubman, the founder of the Underground Railroad, who in the Civil War, we all know her U.S. history, she led you know 300 plus slaves to freedom out of the South. Well, she had high standards. She had to. We're going to get out of, we're going to get out of Dodge City you're going to do exactly what I tell you to do and not say a word and be quiet and this and that. Well, along the way, she had people that wanted to split. They just wanted to leave. I can't do this. I'm going back south. I'm going back to the plantation. She, this is totally politically incorrect, so I'm warning everybody. Right. She'd hold a gun to the head of that other slave and say, you're going to die right now if you leave us because we're all going to die if you leave us and get caught, and you will get caught. She would say most all the time, 
they would say, I'm sorry, I repent, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. And then she would graciously forgive them, completely embrace them, and they'd be on their way up to Baltimore or, or, or Maine. The point is this, in today's application, I don't think most people, even good people, reach for high standards on their own. They need a leader to call them up, yeah. call them up. Yeah. But when we set high standards, you would agree, I think, even good people don't hit them all the time. In fact, maybe most of the time we don't hit them. So what do we have on the backside that's some sort of a safety net where we say in an appropriate way, I love you, Jeff. You're my brother. You're my, you're my pal. You're my colleague. Yeah. I'm not going to let you go. So the image I have on this one, it's one of our habitudes. It's called the Golden Gate Paradox. And if you don't mind, I want to take two minutes and tell Please, this story. Please, I do. Yeah. So the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California, was, is just a brilliant feat. Even to this day, I love visiting there. It was built during the Great Depression. So right around 1932-33, because it was the Great Depression, they had average workers that weren't engineers applying for jobs to put bolts in this bridge. Yeah, it's scary. It, very <laughs> scary. Thank you for summarizing my point so well. So they're up there and they're getting scared because you know they just know the average death rate is pretty high. So a couple of the guys went to the foreman and said, could we put a safety net in? And the foreman immediately is thinking, oh my gosh, if we put a safety net in, we're not going to reach, we're going to meet our deadline. We've got a deadline mm -hmm. and we're not going to reach our budget because that's going to cost another $300,000. Back then, that was a lot of money. But the foreman thankfully said, you're right. We're going to stop work. We're going to put the net in. It's going to be this big and you're going to move, the net will move with you as you go down the bridge. And the foreman decided, we're not going to meet our deadline. We're not going to meet our budget. He was wrong. They finished on time and under budget. Here's why. They spent the money and time to put the net in, but now people could focus on succeeding, not surviving. I'm working faster because I'm not worried about falling. In fact, they had, I think they had a couple of, maybe, maybe 19 people fall to the net, get right back up, put those bolts in. Whereas before they'd have to stop coming. Now we had funeral. I'm just saying, the it's a paradox. It's oh, a paradox. Yeah. Powerful. Putting that relationship safety net in to our staff. I'm getting emotional now because yeah. I'm thinking of two staff members that growing leaders that needed, they needed me to forgive them. Uh -huh. And we lost money. <laughs> it was not good. They thought I, they're going to be let go. But um, I was a foreman at yeah. that point, and I said, you need a safety net right now. And uh, it was I, what they needed. When you tell us, it makes me, uh, the, the, the image in, uh, in my head, the educational image is yeah. the, the principal supporting teachers yeah right because yeah. at a time like this it's a it's a really difficult time yes, to be a teacher is. right yes it is so um and yeah. it's wrong for us to lower our standards mm -hmm. because Correct. we actually have kids who depend on us right that's right the and they deserve our best and they yeah. deserve our best yeah well in the meantime this time that we're this time of gray and sometimes mm -hmm. chaos is hard for not just kids but mm -hmm. teachers too yeah so for the principal to say, I have high expectations because we have kids that depend on mm -hmm. us, and yeah. when you feel like you're going to fall, yeah. there is a net. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. it, this is the perfect image for the schoolhouse. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a lot of things, but yeah. that, that's where yes. my head goes. Yeah. And of course, I'm a biased educator. Yes, but, yes. Um, so am I. Well said. Yeah. Well, it's true. I, we, we need to remember. I've heard a lot of superintendents say this. We need to remember we're human. And that's, this is the human part. Uh, this is emotionally expensive to be in a classroom with 25 students or more. Yeah. And uh, we need to remember that and, and remember that first that they're humans, then they're teachers. Yeah. Okay, so I've taken a lot of time, but I want to ask one more question. Okay. And this is a question I ask 
everyone okay. that on, on a leader chat. Because most of our systems and supports for our members are roundtable supports. Okay. It's not someone talking at them. Yeah. It's yeah. them talking to each other, yeah. leaders helping leaders, yeah. right? So let's just pretend for the sake of uh, this conversation that we're sitting at this round table, okay. All right. right? Like Andy says, circles yep. are better than rows. That's we right. say the same thing, we stole it from him. Yep. And let's pretend we're in a circle with other educational leaders. Yeah. Um, and one of them asks, before we go, what's, what's your last piece of advice for mm. us? What, kind of brass tacks, pragmatic. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what would you say to them? What would you want to leave them with as they head out into this wow. messy world of yeah, trying to tap yeah. into their social-emotional side as leaders? Okay, wow, that's a great question. I think it's one that deserves a better answer than Tim Elmer. We need Dan Pink back in here is what we need right Yeah, now. actually, let's stop. <laughs> um, we'll, Dan? We'll, we'll wrap this up. I don't think so. Um, here's what comes to my mind. It may not be the best thought, but it's my thought right now. When I lead in a paradoxical way, where I'm reading before I'm leading, my people end up feeling like my, need, my leader knows me. My leader knows me. She knows me. He knows me. And the reason we do is because we are reading the signals, the verbal, the nonverbal, the paraverbal communication that's saying back, I'm anxious. I'm not sure about this. I need help with this. I need assurance from you. And we're doing what they need, not just what we, what we want to do. So I love telling a story, and I'll, I'll, I'll just share this story because it's a great picture of this. I believe it was 1945 that the President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, passed away. He'd had this long bout with physically, but um, he had been elected four terms, so he was much loved by the American people. Not everybody, but a lot of them. So you can imagine when they marched his casket through the streets of Washington, D.C., there were thousands of people that were on the sidewalks just just to pay their respects. Yeah. The story I love about this day is one particular gentleman was on the sidewalk with two hankies, just weeping. In fact, people are looking at him, is he gonna be okay? Is he gonna be okay? And he fell to the ground on his knees, just sobbing. Well, after a few minutes, the man next to this poor gentleman decided I need to help him up. So as he lifted him up, this gentleman that helped said to the man sobbing, did you know the president? And I love the man's response. He said, no, but he knew me. I want my people yeah. to say that about me Yeah, yeah. when I'm done. Yeah, so the, the, the concept here, people need to feel at a time, especially like this, that the leader not just cares, yeah. but knows. Yeah, yes. Right? It's, it's, a deep empathy, it's a deep empathy, right? Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah. Oh, Tim, this is, it's always, so wow. enlightening talking to you. I love being with you too. And so, and this, this, so this book, yeah. The Eight Paradoxes of, the, of Great Leaders, you didn't, you didn't call me, I called you. I, I am gonna keep pushing people to read this. No, you're kind, thanks. And it is, it is yeah. I mean, your, your last one I told you went really well with a lot of, a yeah. lot of leaders in schools. Mm -hmm. um, this one is, it's just, it's so timely. It's wow. perfect, pristine timing. So it was for me. And so I, I want people to read this. So I'm so thankful that you came and talked to us about today. My pleasure. It was great. It's always great to be with you. Thanks. Hey, thank you. Yeah, you bet. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders, educators, thank you so much for your time. I know that you've enjoyed this just as much as I have. I'm so thankful for Tim Elmore and the work they do at Growing Leaders. Everyone, be well.